Our scripture today is from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right. Good morning, everybody. All right. Ready or not, we're back in the book of Revelation here this morning. I uh, hope you've been looking forward to it as much as I have. Uh, but here we go. Uh, and here's the thing as we get started with it. Uh, man, yeah. Uh, all excited to jump back in. I feel like I've had Revelation 12 on the mind for the past three months. I don't know. And, you know, so got back into it this week, but got the sermon all put together, put the outline out, sent the outline out to all of my uh, grace group leaders. I think I was even communicating with Danny and Nate uh, and Fuzzy over the week because they're, they're starting up this new grace group on Sunday afternoons, uh, which, by the way, if you're interested, talk to them. Um, and they're going to be working through the sermon. So I was sending them, you know, some of the passages that I'm, how I'm seeing the passages play out in the next couple of weeks. And I think it was Fuzzy who responded in an email to them and said, yeah, he'll send us our, his passages and everything like that. But this is Aaron Sussick. And so he's probably going to switch it up at the last minute. And we're not going to know anything. And I don't know if 
Uh, Fuzzy got a, a word of um, uh, prophetic premonition at that point in time. <laughs> Here's the thing. We're not going to make it all the way through chapter 12 like I'd originally intended we were going to do this morning. I, I don't know if it's because... Ah, this is just so much in this chapter. And this chapter is like a central, it's a primary text for understanding this whole book of Revelation. Or maybe it's just because uh, this chapter has been so influential in my own understanding of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of Christ and what it means to live out that kingdom in today's world. And so as I was going through the sermon this morning, there was just so much, and I found myself almost like speaking, rehearsing in triple time, so I could cram everything in that I wanted to get in to say, uh, and so I almost felt like the Spirit of God just saying, hey, just slow it down. Just take a break. You know, we don't have to cram all this in today. We got time. So here's the thing. We're only going to get down through chapter, or through verse 10 uh, this morning, and then we're going to pick it up uh, where we left off next week. So Fuzzy, you weren't here, but I gave you credit for a prophetic premonition earlier that, yes, in fact, the text that I had sent really wasn't going to be the text anyway. So we are in chapter 12. We're only going to do first 10 verses here this morning, okay, because there's just so much in here. And there's some really important things that I just don't want to gloss over. The second reason why uh, it's a little difficult here this morning is because as we're jumping back into this, I wonder if we're just out of shape a little bit with the book of Revelation, right? Maybe you kids, teenagers, got back to school here in September, jumped back into your math classes, right? And it had been a better part of three months since you had looked at an equation Right, And you got back into it, and you think, oh, my goodness, I'm out of shape. I see these equations. I have this general idea of what I'm supposed to be doing, but I, you know, what in the world? And, and sometimes I wonder if the book of Revelation is the same way. Like, if we get out of shape in how we read and understand and apply the book, we get ourselves in trouble. And the main reason for that, uh, if you were here when we were working through this in the first few months of the year, up through chapter 11, the main reason is that's because we're dealing with a type of literature here that we don't naturally have a whole lot of experience with. Okay, the book of Revelation, this is part of the beauty of the Bible, is that the Bible is written by a variety of different authors who write in a variety of different literary styles and genres. And the book of Revelation is what is called the apocalyptic genre. And my bet is that 90-some percent of us here are not in the habit of regularly reading apocalyptic literature. And so we don't really aren't too familiar with how apocalyptic literature works. And so at best, a book like Revelation can be kind of confusing and scary to us. At worst, we make the book of Revelation fit into all the other styles of literature that we are familiar with, and we maybe make some, we don't let it speak on its own terms, if you will. I'll give you an example. I I, I like to read this journal, image journal. It's a Christian journal on on the arts and literature, there's often essays and short stories, and occasionally there's poem. And I, and I asked Bill to, to flip up on the screen one of the poems. You probably can't see that, but that's okay. Um, because here's the thing, right? As I, 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 I like to think myself sophisticated, so I'll often you know, read the poetry uh, that's in there as well, too. And so this is one entitled, Tonight If the Fog Does Not Rise. And here's the thing, right? I don't know how contemporary poetry works. <laughs> I don't know the rules of contemporary poetry. Like, for instance, I don't know why, like, in the third line, things are indented uh, a certain way, and then sometimes they're indented a little bit further, or sometimes they're indented back. Or I don't, I still haven't figured out why this thing doesn't rhyme, right? I'm still back in Dr. Seuss poetry, so I, I have a hard time. So I can read through this poem, 
and I can recognize maybe, okay, I think I pick up a little bit of a point that, that the, the author is making here, and I can see that she's using some rich words, rich imagery, but I really don't know what all she's doing because, again, I'm not too familiar with contemporary poetry, and I don't know the rules. All to say, if there's anybody here who is and would love to give me a crash course, I'd love to do that so I can really... Uh, not just be a fugazi, but actually be sophisticated when I read po uh, poetry. Anyway, okay, that's good enough. You can you can take that off. But here's the point. The point is, gotta let the Bible speak on its own terms, and part of that means letting getting back into shape on how you read this type of literature, which we don't normally read and we're not all that familiar with. So before we jump in, let me give you three quick reminders. Three quick reminders about the things that apocalyptic literature is not, or is not, most of the time is not. And I tried to do this by three L's to make it a little more helpful for you to remember. Apocalyptic literature, number one, not always literal. Okay, very, very important. Apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic comes from the word, Greek word apocalypto, which means to reveal. And oftentimes it means to reveal things which are hidden or things that we don't normally see or things that we don't normally think about. And so apocalyptic literature wants to grab our attention with dramatic pictures and vivid imagery to get our attention to capture our imaginations, to get us to stop and to think about this image and this picture, okay? So it communicates truth to us through signs and symbols and allegory, okay? And if we force everything to be literal, we're not going to let it speak on its own terms. Two, doesn't always look ahead. <laughs> I struggle with the find an L word for that. Basically, it's not always dealing with the future. It doesn't always look ahead. And this is another mistake that we often make. We see stuff in the book that looks strange, and we think, I don't see this happening in the world today, or I don't know when this ever did happen in the world, so this must be entirely future stuff. This must be crazy stuff that's going to go down sometime in the future. And here's the thing. The book of Revelation is every bit, if not more so, about the past and the present or I shouldn't even say, not even just the book of Revelation, but apocalyptic literature in general aims to reveal as much about the present as it does about what's yet to come. Uh, you could argue that the bulk of chapter 12 has little to nothing to do with the future, and we'll get there when we get there, but just hang on for me there. Okay, so not always literal, not always looking forward, and in fact, if you remember the first couple months of the year when we were working through this, I'm approaching the book from the perspective that it gives us this symbolic look behind the curtain of all of life between the period of time of Christ's resurrection and his first victory over the powers of evil and death and his final victory when he comes again, right? It's a symbolic look at that whole period of time, okay? Not always literal, not always looking ahead. Last one, not always linear, this is very important as well, too, when you're reading through apocalyptic literature. It's got a lot of visions, a lot of dreams that don't just build on each other sequentially, or right, where the book of Revelation is not just one unfolding storyline. It's another mistake we can make. Apocalyptic literature gives multiple dreams and visions. Think of like the book of Daniel or the book of Zechariah, right? You have multiple visions, multiple dreams, and they don't follow sequentially. Oftentimes they go back... And they look at period of history that the previous dream looked at, but they do it through a different angle, 
Or it's a different type of dream communicating a similar thing. Okay? All to say that the analogy that I've used, which is helpful for me, that reading the book of Revelation is almost like walking into an art gallery. And as you're walking into the art gallery, the sign across the door says, the life in between. Right? Right? So that I know, okay, everything I'm going to be looking at here is giving me this symbolic or this artistic look at life between the first victory of Christ and his final victory. And right, and you walk in and you see a painting on the wall and you look at the colors, you look at the characters, you looked at how the thing is put together and say, oh, okay, there, I get a picture to get me to contemplate life in, in between. And then you move on to the next picture and you see oh, the colors are a little bit different. They use the brush strokes a little bit more and there's more abstract stuff in here. Think, oh, okay, and now I get another look at another window in to life in the in-between, Okay. So, repeat after me. Not literal, not always looking forward, and not always linear. You with me? All right, good. <laughs> I think we're going to see this in, the ch- in these two weeks that we're going to spend in chapter 12, but hopefully that gets us back into shape just a little bit. We'll try to flex those muscles. Uh, that's how I do muscle workouts, is flex it like that. So we, yeah. All right, all right, anyway. All right, chapter 12. All right, great central drama uh, in this whole book, right? It's most commentators believe like this starts the second half of the book. First half ends at the end of chapter 12 of 11. Now we start this whole new look uh, from chapter 12. And it, we've got some interesting characters here in the beginning. Actually, they're referred to as signs, right? Symbols, signals. Uh, we've got this great sign of a woman uh, who's all decked out and arrayed in the stars and the sun and the moon and all that. And then we've got this hideous red dragon. We have a little child that's born. And maybe that's where we'll start in terms of identifying these characters because John kind of lets the cat out of the bag about this child. He says, this is the one born who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay. So here's the question. Who is the child born who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. That's, that's good. This is where you can give that Sunday school answer. You know, the little kids, but don't know the answer. Jesus? You're right. That's right. Yeah. Think about when, you know, when the angel comes to Mary originally to announce, you know, her pregnancy. He says, you're going to be with child, and this child's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high, and God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and his, and his kingdom will have no end. Or actually, more specifically, this line, he will rule the nation with a rod of iron. That's from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is uh, the great coronation psalm where God says to the king, today you have become my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth your possession, and you will rule them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces as like the potter's vessel. So be warned, therefore, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Right? And if by chance you can remember from a few months ago, now the book of Revelation actually takes Psalm 2 and applies it to Jesus a couple times. We actually just saw it in chapter 11, three months or so ago. Right? So anyway, all right, there's our, there's our, there's our side. We, we've got the identity of the child, 
This is the messianic king. This is Jesus, right? Okay, which still leads us to the woman. Does this mean the woman, the mother, mother of Jesus, is Mary? Which, that, that is certainly interpretation out there. Many hold that. And if you're interested in hearing more about that, you can go talk to Raj. <laughs> Raj and I were driving over to City Team yesterday, and we just got to talking about Revelation 12 a little bit. And he started talking about this woman as, as Mary in, in a... And uh, eventually I said, man, you're going to have to get out of my car because you're messing up my sermon for tomorrow. <laughs> uh, because I tend to, I told him, I tend to view, look at the woman a little bit more broadly as being this symbolic representation of the whole company of the covenant people of God out of which the Messianic King comes. Okay, and part of the reason I do that, uh, there's some connections between the symbolic imagery of the sun, or the stars and with, with Israel in the Old Testament. But more specifically, there are numerous places in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, where Israel, especially during her time of exile and suffering, she is referred to as a woman in the pains of childbirth, right? The agony of childbirth about to give give way to life. Like you think of like Isaiah chapter 27, uh, or more specifically, and I think this would be helpful, Micah chapter 3, whereas the prophet is looking forward to the fact that Israel is going to enter into exile. He says in chapter 3, Rise and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you're about to go out of the city and dwell in the open country, and you're going to go to Babylon. And from there you'll be one day rescued. Uh, yeah, and then you jump down to chapter 5, and you get this familiar passage, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore, God will give them up, his people, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Right? So I think what you have here in the beginning is this long-awaited period of time where after generations of Israel and God's people suffering and enduring hardship, writhing in the pains of childbirth, at long last, out comes this prophesied child, this one who would be king, the one who would rule the nations, who would deliver his people. Okay? The problem is... There's another character in the delivery room there, right? There's this hot red dragon, who John also informs us who that is, right? A little bit later on, he calls him, this is Satan, the serpent from old, the great deceiver of the earth, the one whose sole intention in life is to undo all the mighty works of God, whether it's his works in creation, whether it's the works in his lives of his people, or whether it's his works now in redemption, right? And so this dragon somehow is clued in to this baby that's coming, has a pretty important role in this. So he's there, he's in the delivery room, right? The woman is on the bed, and he's there seething, salivating. He's foaming at the mouth. He's ready before that baby even puts one foot on the ground. He's going to snatch him up and devour the child. But what happens? The child immediately is whisked away to the throne of God. Uh, the woman flees into the wilderness. Uh, we'll pick that up probably next week, a little bit more. We'll pick up her story later. Um, so the, but the son goes up to the throne, and what happens? War breaks out now in heaven. 
right? And this dragon, right, as he's in hot pursuit of this child or whatever, now he goes to war. Him and all of his fallen angel hosts go to war with all the angelic hosts of angel, with Mike, Michael as the uh, chief commander of heaven's armies, and they fight, and what happens? The dragon is, actually the Greek word is almost like unceremoniously tossed or bounced out of heaven. It's thrown out of heaven. It's falling, tumbling, flailing on his way down to the earth. And as he's thrown out of heaven, right, as we often have happen in the book of Revelation, the choirs start to sing. Right? And what are they saying? Ah, now has the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, the authority of his Messiah, the authority of his king has come. All right, let's just pause this for a second. Think with me back to, you know, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus' life. You know, and think of like the early days of Jesus' ministry, right? It was one of the, 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 the first things that happens. He gets baptized. His voice comes out of heaven, kind of like Psalm 2. Ah, this is my son. Listen to him. And then what's next? He goes out in the wilderness. He's led out in the wilderness by the Spirit to do battle with the enemy, to do battle with Satan. And one of Satan's tactics with Jesus is he takes him up onto a high mountain, right? And you remember this scene. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, hey, Jesus, look, all these kingdoms, they belong to me, but I'll give them to you. They can all be yours. You can have them today. All you got to do is bow the knee to me. You bow the knee to me, and all these kingdoms that belong to me, I'm going to give to you. You know, and, and we've talked about this before. One of the interesting things is Jesus doesn't, doesn't refute that. He doesn't say, you father of lies. These are not your kingdoms. They belong to my father. And he, get, he doesn't refute that. All he says is, no, it's written, you only worship the Lord your God. And it's almost like, if you, read, if you let that story play out through the rest of the Gospels, it's almost like, yeah, there is a problem here, that Satan has this sort of authority, this influence over the nations, and I'm coming to deal with that, right? And it's then at the end point, sort of his life, sort of the climax of his life and ministry, uh, when he's led to that cross, when he's nailed to these beams of wood and he's strung up, and you can imagine Satan is there, almost celebrating. I got this Jesus right where I want him. <laughs> Here he is, hanging on this cross, breathing his last, salivating. I've got him, right? And as Jesus suffers and he dies and he's buried in the ground, you can imagine for three days, Satan and all of his hosts are having this grand old celebration party. Ding dong, sun is dead, sun is dead. Sun. You know, I don't know what, right? And then and all of a sudden on the third day, Jesus comes walking out of that tomb. And imagine the dragon turning around catching a glimpse. And then what happens? After he comes out of the tomb, a short while later, he gathers his disciples together on a hill, up in the hill country. And he says to them, all right, boys. This is my paraphrase. All right, boys. Now, what does he say? All power now. All power and all authority under he in heaven and on earth now belongs to me. So now Go. And get out in all those nations. All those nations Satan was pointing to before. Now, because all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, get out there and go plunder. Go plunder the kingdoms of the dragon. Go plunder and get, reclaim what's mine. 
and my father's. Okay? In other words, what you have in this symbolic picture in the beginning part of chapter 12, if you ask me, is just this condensed version of the birth and the victory of Christ. We leave out much of the, the life part in there, but rather we have the birth of Jesus, Satan trying to get him right where he wants him, thinking he has him, but then he is taken to the throne, right? Which actually, by the way, remember at the end of Matthew, after he says that, go out to the nations, what happens next? He ascends to the Father, and he ascends to the right hand of the throne, right? So it's almost like in the beginning part of chapter 12, we just get a very condensed version of his birth into the world, and then his ascension to the right hand, right to the throne, okay? Why doesn't it fill in the rest? If you ask me, it's because that's not the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is going to come next week when we get there. But for right here and right now, this is the drama that's going on today. The son has been gathered to the throne. Satan has been kicked out. And so now all the voices say, now the salvation and now the power and now the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Now it has come. And there's one more, one more part to that line. He says, for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown out. And this is the part that, you know, I felt like I was really rushing over this morning. Um, but this is really significant. Now the accuser of the brethren has been thrown out. Satan is the great deceiver of the world. He's the one who strives to undo all the works of God. He's the great persecutor of the church. But really, from cover to cover, one of his primary roles is he's the accuser of the brethren. And especially in the Old Testament, Satan has this mysterious access to the throne of God where he can accuse the brethren directly. I think about the book of Job, right? The book of Job opens up, God's having a conversation with Satan in the heavenly courts. And God says, have you considered my, my, uh, my, my boy Job down there? And Satan's, are you kidding me, Job? Come on. Really? That dude has everything you want. His life is a piece of cake. Let me add him. <laughs> Let me add him for just a couple of days. Let me take some of that stuff away, and then we'll see how faithful this Job is to you. Or the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, one of the more chilling scenes in the book of Zechariah. You have Joshua, who is the great high priest of Israel, meaning he's the great representative of all the company of Israel. He's the one who's going to make intercession for Israel, who's going to make atonement for their sinfulness, right? And, and Joshua is standing in the heavenly court before the Ancient of Days on the throne. He's in the holy of holy of holies. And the problem is his garments are filthy. It's covered in dirt, muck, scum from head to toe. <laughs> which if you know anything about the Old Testament sacrificial system and all the ceremonial purity rituals that the great high priest had to go through before he could dare enter into the Holy of Holies, like this is not a very, this is not a good look for him. All right, we're imagining this is going to be the end and the guys are going to have to pull him back out on the rope that they send in the priest because he might not make it. Oh, and to make matters worse, in Zechariah 3, as Joshua is standing there in his dirty outfit, guess who's standing at the right hand of God on the throne? The accuser, Satan. And you can imagine him just sort of laughing. <laughs> like, come on, this is not even a challenge. This is too easy. Look at this guy. He's covered in filth from head to toe. You're the pure, holy, unstained God. How are you going to let this guy stand in your presence? 
And he's the mediator. He's the intercessor for God's people. How in the world are you going to, how do you have any relationship with these people? Right? Do you see that? That's his role. Somehow he had access to the right hand of the Father where he could make accusation, right? He's the one who would stand up there and say, really, these people? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Come on. You know what so-and-so has been thinking about all throughout this past week? You know about this person and how consumed they have been throughout the week with you know, their agenda or what they're addicted to or how little they've been giving a care or a thought to you. Or you know about that guy Aaron up front? You, really? He's going to be part of your people? He's going to be part of these people that you welcome into your family that you use to advance your kingdom? You know how often that dude uh, spends more time worrying about establishing and defending his own kingdom than advancing your kingdom? Really? That's the guy? Really, Jesus, you're going to send, you're going you're to go and you're going to suffer and die for these people? Right, so just catch this scene, right? Do you, do you hear how rich a celebration this is? And can you see why there's this great song, this worship song that's bursting forward through the courts of heavens? Because now the great dragon, the great accuser of the brethren has been thrown out. So that now throughout all the courts of heaven, there is no one anymore to bring accusation against God's beloved people. In fact, the only one that's there anymore now is the righteous and the obedient one who now is at the right hand of the Father, who now is interceding and pleading for his people, who's standing there now and instead of whispering accusation in the ear of the judge, is saying, yeah, those are my people. Yeah, I love them dearly. I gave my life for them. For the joy set before me, I suffered the agony of the cross for their salvation. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, I'm working on them. Yeah, my spirit is sanctifying them. They're with me. They're part of my family. They have my seal. Be gracious to them. Right? Isn't this exactly what the Apostle Paul says uh, in that great passage, Another one of my favorites, Romans 8, where towards the end of the chapter, he asks three questions. Uh, who is there to bring any charge against God's people? For it is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn anymore? Jesus Christ died and even more was raised and now is seated at the right hand of the Father and pleads and makes intercession for his people. And so then the third question, so what in the world could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. I'm confident of this. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor rulers nor anything present nor anything future nor anything in all of creation will ever separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord will ever separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ, our King, right? The one who has triumphed, the one who has kicked the dragon unceremoniously out of heaven and now rules at the right hand. Can you see why this is cause for such celebration? And that's really, you know, again, I want to just keep plowing forward and get through the essays because there is more to this story. But we're going to pause and we're just going to leave it there for now. I want to leave you with that scene. I want to leave you with the scene of the courtrooms of heaven emptied out of all accusers and instead 
the righteous, obedient, loving son seated victoriously at the right hand of the Father. See, because I would imagine that if the statistics are true, the statistics that say that uh, you know, there is an epidemic of guilt and shame right, in our culture, in our broader culture, my guess is if the statistics are true, there's a good number of us here who know all too well what it is to wrestle with the pain of guilt and the pain of shame. Right? And my guess is that if you are one who, who does wrestle with guilt and does wrestle with the pain of shame, you know that that is a pain unlike any other. And you know that you would just as well prefer to live in any other kind of pain than the pain of guilt and the pain of shame. Right? And if you're here this morning and you're feeling that and you've been walking through that, Man, can you just sit yourself in that heavenly courtroom? You need to do that. You need to do that on a daily basis. You need to sit yourself in that heavenly courtroom. You need to three, hear those three questions ring through the halls, responded by crickets, right? Who is Who now can bring any accusation against God's people? Silence. Or who is there to condemn? Silence. Or what could possibly separate us anymore from the love of God, the eternal covenantal love of God? Nothing. And then out of the silence, you hear the voice of Jesus begin to speak. Right? The voice of the Lamb who has a mortal wound. Right? Who suffered and died in love to be a sacrifice for your sins. The one who speaks with the authority of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who can roar with that authority. You need to hear this Jesus who has, who as all the angels have said, is worthy to receive honor and glory and wisdom and might. Why? Because you ransomed your people from every tongue, tribe, and nation by your blood and you made them a kingdom of priests. This Jesus who is seated at the right hand and is worthy to open the scrolls when no one else was worthy, who can open those scrolls, open the scrolls of history, and who has the authority and the power to make sure that all of history now flows to God's appointed end. You need to hear this Jesus say your name and call you his beloved. If you have entrusted your life to Jesus, you need to hear the silence and then hear Jesus call your name, call you his beloved, to name you as part of his family. Name you as part of his covenant people for whom his blood was spilt. Name you as part of his eternal heritage that he is going to see by his power and authority all the way through to the very end. You need to hear that regularly. You know, or maybe you're here this morning and, okay, so maybe you're not dealing you know, too deeply with the pain of guilt and shame. But maybe it is that you you spend too much of your life living, I don't know, painfully aware of the court of public opinion. I was just talking to one of my girls this week about this, and I told him, you know, sometimes it can be so easy for me to slip into this mode where I'm just painfully conscious, conscious of the court of public opinion. I'm just painfully conscious of how everyone else is perceiving me and looking about me and thinking about me. And I can very easily get into the mode where I am living calculated, you know, what I say or what I do to make sure that people's opinions or perspectives of me is a favorable thing or whatever. You know, and, and part of the point was the only thing that liberates from that is 
right? Situating ourselves in this ultimate courtroom. And instead of having such fear and reverence for the court of public opinion, we have this rightful, holy fear and reverence of the one who sits on the throne in that heavenly courtroom, right? The Ancient of Days, the one whose voice and presence brings thunder and lightning and earthquakes, and right? And we need to be consumed with him and then to hear him say, you are just and you are good and you are right. You are in the right. You are part of this way. And it's only seeing that that can liberate me now to say, okay, so why in the world would I subject myself to any other court? You know, I was thinking about this um, as we were having our evangelism discussion class up there uh, on Wednesday nights. You know, and Dolph was starting to talk about how, and I hope he'll get into this more, but he starts talking about how sometimes it just feels like this conviction from the Spirit to just speak words of encouragement or words of truth to random people when he's in the grocery store or when he's at Lowe's or when he's walking past somebody on the street, right? And and so often, you know, for me or for us, we think, oh, I can't do that because I don't know these person. I don't know what they're going to think of me if I just jump in there and say, hey, let me encourage you. You look great today, brother. Carry on. Like, what are they going to think of me? Right? Because I'm, I'm trapped in this court of public opinion. Right, And I think that's partly why we spent so much of our time on Wednesday night just talking about, yeah, how is that relationship with the judge, with the king going? Right, Because if that's going strong, right, there, there oftentimes is this liberation from living life in the court of public opinion so that I can more effectively be instruments of God's love and his encouragement. And of course, the last thing I'll say, and we'll close it with this, Hear me out here. <laughs> this is not a, whatever, a self-esteem chat. I'm trying to make you all feel a little bit better about yourself today. That's not what this is, right? This is all about seeing what has happened in the courts of heaven, seeing the victory of Christ, and seeing what that does to you and to your account and to your standing and your eternal relationship with the Father, I was invited uh, this past week. Joyce helped arrange this. I was invited to um, a Muslim prayer meeting over on the campus in Swarthmore. It's interesting. I went there and you know did the prayers, and the Imam gave a 20-minute message, kind of like this, and had a chance to talk uh, with him afterwards. And you know we talked about getting together sometime and just kind of you know communicate more, just to help understand you know where each other is coming from. You know, and part of his message was on the mercy of God, mercy of Allah, and I thought he spoke very eloquently of the mercy of Allah. And I thought, boy, this is kind of familiar in the ways that I would talk about the mercy of God here. And afterwards, when we were talking a little bit, we were just talking about a variety of things. I said, yeah, I'd love to hear more uh, about this mercy of God, this mercy of Allah that you talk about. Because and I didn't get into it here, but where I'd love to go with him is that, okay, so yeah, God is merciful, but, right, or this judge, who is also just, he, right? Yes, indeed, he is merciful, but that's not a whole lot of help to me, uh, a desperate sinner, right? Or, in other words, it's not a whole lot of comfort to me that God is merciful so long as there is an accuser standing at his right hand saying, yeah, I know you're merciful, but do you see what's going on in his life? Because if God's mercy is any way is conditional on my activity, why well, I'm sunk, Right? The mercy of God is applied to my account only because the accuser has been cast out. An accuser has been cast out only because the Christ, the child, has conquered. 
And the Christ, the child, has ascended to the right hand of God. And now, in that authority and power, he has kicked out the accuser. And now he speaks his words of love and mercy and covenantal blessing over me. Right? So you are not loved. You are not um, worthy of all this because of who you are, as you are. Right? It's more the condition, as Tim Keller would always say to his church, the good news of the story is... (laughs) You're actually far worse than you ever imagined. There's things going on in your heart, things going on in your mind that you haven't even, that hasn't even been uncovered to you yet. There is a depth of sin, depravity in your own heart and life that you don't even fully understand. You're worse than you can imagine. But you are more loved than you could ever dare dream. Because in spite of what's going on in your heart, in spite of what's going on in your life, in spite of who you are, the Son has given his life in love for you. And because he has triumphed, because he has been raised, because he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is applying his covenantal seal to you, you are named as the beloved. You are part of the eternal family. You are just. You are in the right. You are heirs to all the inheritance that the Son is receiving from the Father. That's great news. Amen? So we're going to leave it there for now. Come back next week because there's some hard stuff we have to talk about in the rest of the chapter. But I think it's good that we didn't just plow through that. We're going to let that, let that sit over us for a week. And I pray that God would sink that in and cause that to be a great source of comfort and encouragement and even liberation for you this week. And I pray that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.